please remain standing as um, you are able. I'm, uh, I'm grateful. I told Mary Lou for the musicians. I spent uh, a few days in the mountains of North Carolina last week, and this sort of eased the transition back. Um, we stand, and as we come before God's Word, we'll do so very likely as Jesus, the disciples, Paul would have done as well, reciting what he would come to call the great commandment, the Shema, if you'll follow after me. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Hal. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All summer we're in Paul's letter to Corinth, 1 Corinthians. We're in chapter 8. In chapter 7, Paul made the turn from things he had heard about them to things they had actually asked him about in a direct letter. And in this letter, they're asking him about... Uh, an issue of eating food that's offered uh, to a false god in a temple at a banquet. And so in answering this, there are a couple of times when he'll quote them back to themselves, and I'll try to indicate that uh, like this as Paul, as Paul responds. Now about food offered to idols. We know that all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up, and love builds up. And the one who thinks they know something may yet not know it as they ought. But whoever loves God knows God. Now concerning food offered to idols, there is no such thing as an idol in this world. And we know that there is only one God. But even if there are many gods on earth and heaven, and there are many gods, and there are many lords. For us, there is only one God, the Father, through whom everything came into existence and for whom we live. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom everything was made and in whom we live. But not everyone possesses this knowledge. And so the one who has been raised with idols, believes that in sacrificial meals and sacrificial food, food is actually being offered to these gods. And in doing so, their conscience is weak, and therefore their conscience is defiled. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. When I grew up, one of the staples of my cartoon life was the show featuring Bullwinkle the Moose and Rocky the Flying Squirrel. And on many of the episodes, they would have a segment that they would call, or Rocky would introduce, and now Mr. Know-It-All. Well, Mr. Know-It-All was Bullwinkle, you may recall, and so Bullwinkle as a know-it-all, would try to explain or teach you something, and of course he would get it all messed up. So there's one particular episode that's still circulating on YouTube where Mr. Know-it-all is going to teach you how to sneak into a theater and not have to pay for it. And so Mr. Know-it-all tries to sneak into the theater, and of course, as luck would have it, the theater is managed by Boris Badenoff who, of course, cuts Bullwinkle off at every one of his things that he tries to do to get himself in, and even ends up having Bullwinkle work for him as an usher for just popcorn and all the torn ticket, ticket stubs he can take home with him. Well, 
things aren't going very well for Bullwinkle, so he goes outside in this episode, sits on the ground, and announces to Rocky the Flying Squirrel that he didn't really want to get into that theater anyway. And then the camera switches from Bullwinkle and Rocky and goes up to the marquee on the theater, and it says, Close for Repairs. And so we find out that Mr. Know-it-all doesn't really know that much, or at least as much as he thinks, and that's part of the joke of the whole matter. Well, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth that is full of what we might call Mr. and Mrs. Know-it-alls. Only it's no laughing matter. These know-it-alls apparently combine their faith in Christianity with a form of either uh, stoicism or cynicism, uh, prevailing philosophies in the Greco-Roman world. They combine those two and they think they know everything. And they think Paul knows very little. So in chapter 2 and 3, they accuse Paul. Paul's writing because he's been accused of not being very smart. And uh, in other chapters, they tell him that uh, some of them have figured out that the only things that matter in life are the spiritual things and fleshly bodily things don't matter. So some say it's okay to go to the temple prostitutes because they know that it just doesn't matter what they do with their body. And then we saw two weeks ago that others slice it the other way, and that because only spiritual counts and bodily things are bad, they decide it's better not to get married and to try to divorce the spouses they already have because of what they know. Now today, these know-it-alls are talking with Paul about this issue. It's the issue of going to a banquet, and at this banquet at a pagan god's or goddess's temple, meat is served. And they say, well, we know there's no such thing as an idol, and we know there's only one God, so we can go in there and eat whatever we want because of what we know. Well, apparently some of the younger Christians in Corinth who used to worship idols are a little nervous about that because they just don't know that yet. And so they write Paul to see if Paul will make these younger Christians behave, talk sense into him, and say, look, it doesn't matter. You can go anywhere you want because there's no such thing as a God or an idol. And they think Paul will take their side on this issue. But he doesn't, because as you get deeper into the context, Paul knows that a lot of things are happening, which may not be as obvious to us on the surface, in this little church, and this food issue kind of brings them to the fore. Number one is just this. Very few people in Corinth had meat on their diet. You know, they may have had small places where you could eat, but they didn't have fast food where you could get all sorts of meat for under a dollar. They just didn't have that. The only people that, in, that ate meat typically were wealthy Corinthians or people who were invited to banquets at the temple of a god or a goddess and meat was served. And it just so happens the people who typically were invited to those banquets at the pagan temples were those who were either well off economically or they were social climbers and they had the reputation of being somebody. So basically what you have is what we might call a first world problem, that most of the third world people in Corinth and in the church can't relate to because they're never going to get invited to eat at a meal like that, and they can't afford that kind of meat anyway. And so Paul realizes what we've got here is not a food issue, it's, it's, a, it's a division issue based on socioeconomic status. And the thing that some people think is a problem, and that is they won't let us go eat this fancy food, is a non-issue for people who will never get invited to a party like that. Reminds me a little bit of what happened to my uh, son. We went to visit him at his internship. He told me a couple weeks ago he taught a Bible study at the transitional housing unit called Hospitality House in Boone, North Carolina. And it transitions people from homelessness 
to a, a place where they get a job, they begin to save money, and then they're placed, they're able to afford an apartment with this program's help. So he came and taught them a wonderful biblical lesson about the importance of rest and taking days off. Yeah, they started to raise their hand early on in this talk, and they're like, hey, if we don't work, we don't get paid. And we, if we take a break in the middle of our 12-hour shift, they'll fire us, and then we won't get that job, and then we won't be able to move into that housing. And even though my son had a wonderful biblical lesson, which was right in so many ways, it was wrong for where they were in their life. And I think that's part of what's going on here. The lesson doesn't fit because what they want to do, these know-it-alls, is increase the divide between the haves and the have-nots. And Paul's not going to go for it. And it actually gets worse. What we've learned through scholars um, over the past few decades is these parties that were thrown at temples uh, of gods and goddesses uh, tended to be divided into two parts. The first part was a meal. We all sat down together. Maybe you had a drink. And then about halfway through, the wives, and I'm saying that intentionally in this part of the ancient world at that time, the wives were dismissed. And the real hard stuff was brought out to drink. And things got bad and crazy and they got there fast. And young, attractive men and women were brought out as, as servers, and it got out of control. It turned into an orgy. Many scholars believe that the famous chapter of Acts 15, Acts 15 is about what happens when people who aren't Jews want to become Christians. What do we do with these first Gentiles? And so should we circumcise them so they'll be like the Jews who become Christians? And the early church makes a decision. They say, no, they don't have to be circumcised, but they need to avoid meat offered to idols and sexual immorality. And scholars now have figured out what they're talking about. Acts 15, they're saying, you can join our church, but you can't go to those parties. Because that will undo everything we have been trying to do. And so these parties are a real issue. They're a temptation toward immorality. So you may know that what you do with your body doesn't really matter because you're all good in the spirit and you show up these things. But other people, they look at that and they say, that's a temptation to go down a dark side of immorality. So Paul knows that. So he's not going to do anything to encourage them to participate in this. And then finally, it's, uh, there were a lot of people, the first Christians in Corinth who were Gentiles, would have grown up worshiping false gods and goddesses. You had a, a wide variety, by the way, in uh, Corinth. We found temples, or I haven't, archaeologists have found temples to 17 different gods and goddesses in Corinth. They've been excavated, including one to a tree and one to Caesar himself. So there were no shortage of temples in which to go, and they've been raised all their life doing that. And now as Christians, they know that that's not the real God. And so now you're trying to tell them it's okay to go back in there? Paul seems to think at the very least that's not very sensitive. It's like if you had a friend who's a recovering alcoholic. And they're in AA, and you invite them to dinner at your house, and the first thing you do for them is you bring out the wine. You wouldn't do that. You have a friend who two weeks ago quit smoking, and they're working hard on it. So they come to your house, and you take them in the backyard and offer them a cigarette. You wouldn't do that. And so here are all these people who have spent their life worshiping false gods. You pull them out of the temple, and the first thing you do is say, well, come on with me. It's really okay. And you go back in there. Paul knows that that's not going to help. 
And so what really has started as an issue in their mind about food, Paul turns into an issue about knowledge. And he's saying, is your knowledge really helping you at all? If it's leading you to be divisive, if it's leading you to actually actually endanger people and lead them back the wrong path. And so Paul says a couple really interesting things. One is this. He said, not all possess knowledge. In other words, you say everybody knows this. And so it's not a problem. And Paul's like, maybe not everybody knows what you think, because as you and I know from experience, the longest journey you ever make is from here to here. And so in my head, I might think, well, that's a false God and false gods don't matter. But if I spent most of my life worshiping, has it gotten here yet? And Paul's saying that you should be careful. People may not know everything you think they know, and you're responsible because you do know that you need to live responsibly with them. So let's try an example. Uh, we all know this, right? It is not good for people to play in traffic. Do you agree? Was that knowledge we'd all have, right? However, some people with a Pokemon Go app end up there. Or did you hear about the two in San Diego? Playing Pokemon and chasing a monster, they go off a cliff. Now, fortunately, hit the water and they're injured, but not they're alive. Now, we all know you shouldn't walk off a cliff, and we all know you shouldn't play in traffic. But some people are saying to the makers of the app, you've got to be more responsible. You can't lead people into traffic. You can't lead people off cliffs, because they may know it here, but in the midst of playing, they don't know it there. Does that make sense? And so Paul's saying, yeah, you know about these false gods. You know they're not real, but But you've got to be responsible for others who just aren't quite so sure yet. They look at that, and it hurts their faith. We were in in North Carolina, as I said, on Monday we went to a park, and there was a waterfall. I don't know, Pam, was it 60 feet? supposed to be something like that. Impressive waterfall. But we couldn't get there because someone had drowned. Well, jumping off the cliffs from the waterfall into the water. It's plenty deep in some places. They found the body at 31 feet. Um, But we waited for it to show up in the paper or on the TV, and it didn't. So finally we found it online on Friday, and this is what it said. That's the 15th death in 20 years at that waterfall. And then add to it, it says, numerous people who've been paralyzed. And the person who jumped off and died was from a small town five miles away. He knew it. He knew what could happen. But he did it anyway. So they're debating now whether they put rails up and prevent people from doing this. Or at the very least, warning signs. And some people in opposition are like, well, people ought to know. Well, do they? Do they really? There's a responsibility for those of us who know to help those who may not. In the, um, in the Torah, there's a rule that if you have a roof, you have to put a wall on the top of your roof so that nobody accidentally steps off the roof, ends up in the street. <laughs> they ought to know that the roof ends there and there's nothing but air. Not so, says the Bible. You put up a wall, you take responsibility. And so one of the things that Paul's trying to teach them is if your knowledge doesn't help other people and actually hurts them, you don't really know what you think. 
you know. And one of the things I think that translates to us is we know a lot of things about the Bible, but sometimes we may know things and use it in ways that are divisive. We think we have the biblical high ground, but whenever you use your knowledge in a way that hurts someone either directly or indirectly, you no longer have the biblical high ground. You have surrendered it. Because knowledge, says Paul, without love is not valuable. So he teaches them that what's important is not just knowledge. He's not against knowledge, but but love, because love will, love will, Use knowledge in ways that are helpful to people. I remember doing a, a revival years and years ago at a very small town, a small Memphis church. And when it was over, I was in the parlor and greeting and talking with people. And a couple came up. And she came up and started talking to me and quoting Bible verses about what was wrong with the Methodist church. I was okay with that. And then she started about what was wrong with that church where I was preaching. I could tolerate that. Then she went into what was wrong with my sermon. All these Bible verses, I'm looking at her husband like, can you help me here? And this is what he said with the biggest smile on his face. He said, my wife is really into the word. And I'm thinking, you know, she missed some of those words. You know, like judge not lest you be judged. Don't worry about the speck in somebody else's eye when you have a plank in your own. See, the problem was... She had all the biblical verses, but she was using in that knowledge in a way that teared down. And Paul said, love doesn't tear down. Love builds up. And if we think we know something and what we know hurts another person, maybe we don't really know as we think we know. There's a a great religious leader, Abraham Joshua Heschel, the 20th century, who said this, and it's been repeated. You've probably heard it. He said, when I was young, I admired intelligent and clever people. The older I get, he says, I admire kind people. Knowledge. We love knowledge. We're an educated group by and large. But knowledge without love, is it really knowledge? A knowledge that doesn't look out for other people but only looks out for itself? Is that really love? A knowledge that's used to put somebody down because we're right and they're wrong and ruins the relationship in the process. It might be knowledge, but it's not love. And so Paul looks at the issue and says, we got a love and knowledge issue. And I love the way he solves it. And I'm really excited about this because what he does to solve this is he reminds them of what they say they know. They know that there is only one God. Now, how do they know that? You might say, well, because they believe in God. Yes, but they also know it because do you know what they repeat three times a day every day? The Shema. That's why I love this. Paul's going to use it. I worry that we have visitors here on Sunday morning and we recite the Shema and they think we're freaks. But Jesus would have recited it numerous times a day. And here's Paul who, in trying to solve this issue, says, all right, the not one thing you know is you know God is one. But did you know that if you know that, the next part of the Shema is, and now you love. And so Paul, in redoing the Shema, say there is one God through whom everything exists and, in, and through whom we live, and there's one Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, through him we're made, in him we live, 
And rewriting the Shema in those ways for Christians, he's making it clear that the knowledge of God is not knowledge of God unless it's accompanied by the love of God. If you think you know God, but you don't love God, you don't really know God. But then, he doesn't have to say it, but he implies just what Jesus says on the great commandment, which is the love of God also includes the love of neighbor love of others. So what Paul's doing is brilliantly understated. He's leading this inference, which is you think you know God, but you only know God if you love God. And you only love God if you love others. And if you look at that reasoning, what Paul is trying to say, I think is if you don't love others, if you don't take some responsibility for them, then you don't really know or love God. It's not really an issue about food. It's not even an issue about knowledge. It's an issue about love. 